The Old Testament reading is Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 22 through 28. And in this passage, the prophet uh, speaking, uh, the words of the Lord uh, delivers the great promise uh, to the people of Israel that one day God would give them his spirit. He would cleanse them, purify them from sin, and he would give them his spirit so that by the spirit they may live lives pleasing to him. So Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 22 through 28. And this is the infallible and the inerrant word of God. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people and I, and I will be your God. And now let's turn to the New Testament for our New Testament reading, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. 2, Thess- 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. We live after the coming of Christ and after the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And so... Uh, The promise that Ezekiel made to the people of Israel has been fulfilled in Christ and by his giving us his spirit so that we are now sanctified uh, by the spirit. And uh, let's hear now. Second Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Today we are continuing our study of what is called the order of salvation. And just uh, to repeat uh, what I've said before at the beginning of every sermon, the order of salvation uh, that consists of those gracious acts and works of God by which, uh, by His Spirit, He applies to us personally uh, the benefits of that redemption that Jesus Christ accomplished for us in His death and resurrection. And uh, we've looked at calling, uh, regeneration, faith and repentance, uh, justification. Last week we considered adoption. And today our concern is sanctification, sanctification. Primarily, sanctification is God's ongoing work in you as a Christian uh, to uh, make you more holy, to make you more righteous. Uh, To be sanctified is to grow in holiness as progressively you die to sin and you live to righteousness. Uh, 
And as a Christian, it is the Spirit of God who is at work in you to conform you more to the image of Christ so that you become more Christ-like in your thoughts, in your heart, in your speech, in your conduct. And so this is the main thing that sanctification refers to, that progressive work of the Spirit in us to make us more like Jesus, to grow in holiness. But the scriptures teach us that there are really three dimensions uh, to sanctification, uh, one of which is that ongoing work of growing in holiness. Uh, The first dimension, though, uh, of sanctification or the first aspect of sanctification is this, that as a Christian, you have been sanctified. Uh, There is a sense in which you are already sanctified. But secondly, as a Christian, and this is this ongoing sense or this ongoing work of God, Uh, You are being sanctified. And thirdly, there is God's promise that you will be sanctified. And so those will be our our three points this morning. You have been sanctified. You are being sanctified and you will be sanctified. So first, you have been sanctified. Now, when you think of someone uh, that is described as a person who is sanctified, what comes to your mind? What what comes to your mind is someone who has made a tremendous progress by God's grace uh, in growing in holiness. His life is one that reflects uh, the righteousness, the holiness of the character of God. We say that that person is sanctified. He has overcome by the grace of God uh, many struggles with sin and temptation. Um, of course, we can only see what's outside. There is always in the Christian a struggle with sin and temptation. But this is what we think of when we think of the term sanctified. Now, As we'll see, the word sanctified does include this idea of possessing a personal righteousness, of course, by the grace of God. But the basic meaning of the word sanctified uh, does not refer, first of all, to uh, having a personal righteousness. Rather, the most fundamental concept in Scripture of sanctified is someone or something that is set apart from the rest, something that is distinct from what is common. It is a thing or a person that is set apart from a common life or a common usage and is consecrated to God. That's what it means to be sanctified, at least the most basic meaning. And so it means to be set apart, to belong to God, set apart for God's purposes. In the scripture, a synonym uh, for sanctified is the word holy. And so if someone in the scripture is called holy, it means that they are set apart. If something in Scripture is called holy, it means it is set apart from the rest. In that sense, it is sanctified, it is consecrated, devoted to God. Uh, For example, when you read through the book of Exodus, you read about many people and many things that are holy, that is sanctified. Uh, For example, there is a day of the week set apart for God that belongs to God. And this is called the Holy Sabbath, the Holy Sabbath. Uh, The people of God, Israel, they are called a holy nation. Uh, The the tabernacle contained that innermost uh, sanctum, uh, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is. Uh, That is called the most holy place. Uh, The priest's garments were called holy garments. Uh, The priest, if you recall, had a turban, and on that turban there was a plate, and on that plate was engraved the words, Holy to the Lord. That means that that priest was set apart. He was devoted to the service 
of the Lord as a priest. So all of these things, all of these people were sanctified in the sense that they were set apart for the Lord. They were consecrated to him for a special purpose. And whatever or whomever is set apart or devoted to God is considered holy because above all else, it is God who is holy. God is the one who is above all else, the sanctified, the holy one. Because he is the almighty creator of all things. God is the one who spoke his word in the beginning and brought all things into existence. He is absolutely set apart or distinct from his creation. And therefore, because of his utter transcendence over all things, it is God who is preeminently holy. He is the one who is holy. You remember when Isaiah In Isaiah chapter 6, when he beholds that glorious and terrifying vision of the Lord who was seated on his throne, high and lifted up. You remember what the seraphim were crying out? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And because God is holy, whoever and whatever belongs to him or is devoted to him is also holy. And so to be sanctified is to be set apart to belong to a holy God. And for this reason, then, Christians, we are called holy, even though personally we have a long way to go before we are truly holy in a moral and ethical sense. Nevertheless, because we belong to God through faith in Christ, we are already holy. Uh, Peter tells his readers in his first letter, 1 Peter 2, 9, that they are This is true of us, too. They are a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Uh, This is just another way of saying that God's people are sanctified. In Colossians or Corinthians chapter one, verse 12 or verse two, rather, the Apostle Paul says this to the Corinthian church. He says to the church of God that is Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of of our Lord Jesus Christ, both theirs, both their Lord and ours. Now, this is the way that the apostle begins his epistle uh, to the Corinthians. He calls them holy. He calls them saints, sanctified in Christ Jesus. If you read on in Corinthians, what you discover is that the Corinthians, in one sense, they were far from being righteous or holy or saintly. Uh, They were guilty of some very egregious, scandalous, uh, terrible sins. Nevertheless, Paul calls them sanctified because they have been set apart by the grace of God to belong to Jesus Christ. And so they are holy. Uh, Someone has said that this is how Paul addresses believers. First, he calls them saints. He calls them holy. And then he takes them to task uh, for their sins. And so as a Christian, as one who belongs to God by faith in Christ, you are already holy. You are already sanctified in the sense that you have been set apart in order to belong to God. And this is a major reason why you and I, as Christians, that we ought to desire, we ought to pursue holiness with all that is within us. As a Christian, because this is who you are as a Christian, You have been saved by a holy Savior. You have been adopted by a holy God. You have been filled with the Holy Spirit. Your salvation is a a salvation, a deliverance from sin, from all that is unholy and unrighteous. 
And so because you have been set apart to belong to God and because God is holy, therefore, you must pursue holiness and righteousness because this is who you are in Jesus Christ. And so 1 Peter 1 verses 15 and 16 tells us, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conducts. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So you have been set apart for holiness. But unless I'm mistaken, and I don't think I am, there isn't one of, here, one of us here today who has achieved uh, a perfect holiness. There's not one of us who has attained uh, a sinless perfection. Uh, we are still all struggling with sin, with uh, the corruption that is within us, with the sin that indwells in us. Not only does the scripture tell us plainly that even as God's redeemed people, as his sanctified people, nevertheless, there is sin that still lives in us and we often fall into many temptations. We sin. Not only does scripture tell us that, but our own hearts convict us of that. When we examine our lives, our thoughts, our words, we Particularly, like in our worship service, when we measure them against the standard of God's law and his word, we see that there is much in us that is far short of righteousness. Now, when you believed in Jesus Christ, the dominion of sin over you was broken. Your love for sin was replaced by a love for righteousness. Nevertheless, sin still indwells in you. As someone put it, you may no longer live in sin, but sin lives in you. And none of us then have reached that goal of God's saving purposes for us that we would be thoroughly sanctified, holy and righteous. But the good news is that this is a work that God continues to do in us. This is the work that he is doing in us to make us more holy and righteous. And this is really what is meant by the term sanctification when we consider it uh, along with these other uh, parts of the order of salvation, this ongoing work that God is doing in us, that we will be more conformed to the image of Christ. Uh, our confession, rather our shorter catechism, defines sanctification this way. The work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die into sin and to live unto righteousness. And so on the one hand, you have been sanctified in Jesus Christ. You are already holy because you belong to God. But in another sense, you are being sanctified. And this is the second dimension of sanctification, the second aspect, this progressive sense. It's gradual. It's ongoing. It's continuous. And this is one reason why when we remember this, that, that we are by the grace of God, growing in holiness, and yet we have not achieved that yet, that we still struggle with sin. Remembering this is one reason why you and I need to be as sympathetic, as understanding, as gentle as we can be with the failures and the sins of others. Now, this is not to say that there is not a biblical uh, mandate for us to, to deal with sin. Sometimes we must confront others uh, we can't always overlook sin. Sometimes we must acknowledge it, confess it, or, or ask others to recognize it. Nevertheless, even when we do that, 
we must keep in mind that we are all a work in progress. We are all prone to fail. We are all sinners and we sin. And your brothers and sisters in Christ will let you down. Your brothers and sisters in Christ will sin against you and you will do the same against them. None of us have arrived. We are all growing in grace and we all have a long way to go. Um, It's almost baseball season, so I have to include a baseball illustration. But if you've ever been to a a Little League baseball game, uh, what happens like when you're watching seven-year-olds or eight-year-olds play baseball? What happens if one of them drops the ball or, um, you know, the ball, you know, goes right between his legs or whatever? Does everybody stand up and boo the kid? No, of course not. They recognize that he has a long way to go. He hasn't reached maturity yet. He's not going to catch all the balls. In fact, whenever a kid does catch a ball, everybody cheers wildly, you know, like he's hit a grand slam. Because we recognize that these kids are works in progress. And it's the same with us in our sin and our sanctification. And so it's a call then for us to extend that sympathy and understanding to one another. That, uh, yes, we sin against one another and that must be dealt with. But we must be ready, ready to forgive, recognizing that we, too, are prone to fail and to sin. So God is always working in us to sanctify us. And it is the Holy Spirit who carries out that work in us. It is by the Spirit that we are being sanctified. This was what the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel uh, declared to his people in this passage that we read from Ezekiel 36. He said that God would give them his Spirit. He would give his people uh, the Spirit that they might walk in his statutes and obey his rules. Uh, And then we saw in 2 Thessalonians 2.13 that this work of sanctification. This is done by the Spirit of Christ in us, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And of course, in Galatians chapter 5, when Paul describes those marks uh, of a Christian, uh, love, joy, peace, and all of those um, uh, virtues, uh, if we can call it that, are Christ-like qualities. Uh, These are the fruit of the Spirit. And so it is the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ at work in you to sanctify you. And because sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit, therefore, it is a work of God's grace. It is a work of God's grace. You are being sanctified by the power of the Spirit in you. And that grace is yours and the Spirit abides in you as you hold fast to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. And so just like everything in our salvation, like all things in our salvation, this blessing of sanctification, this is not dependent upon your own will, your own strength, your own persistence, but it depends upon the grace of God, that grace of God that is yours by faith in Jesus Christ as the spirit of Christ abides in you and works in you. In Galatians chapter three, verses two through three, the apostle Paul asked the Galatians, he said, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And the answer, of course, is no. We have not. We did not begin by the flesh, by the works of the flesh. We did not begin by our own works. We began the Christian life by the grace of God, by the spirit of Christ. As we look to Jesus by faith and we are not perfected by the flesh, we are not perfected by our works, but by the work of the Spirit within us. 
Jesus said, another way to look at it, Jesus said that he is the true vine and we are his branches. Just as a branch cannot bear any fruit if it is not attached to the life-giving vine, so as branches we can bear no fruit of holiness, no fruit of sanctification, unless we are abiding in the vine who is Christ. And so it is as you abide in Christ by faith, leaning upon him, that the Spirit of Christ abides in you to carry out this work of sanctification. Again, it is all of grace. If we knew who the most sanctified person in the world is, of course, we don't know who that is, but even if we, if we knew, the first thing that he would tell us is, whatever good there is in me, whatever good that I have done, I give all the credit and the glory to God. You would recognize it's all of God. However, having said all that, the grace of God by which you are sanctified is an enabling grace, an empowering grace. The Holy Spirit, who is the one who sanctifies you, he abides in you, he works in you as an enlivening spirit, one who empowers and enables you to think and speak and act in ways that please God so that you are more conformed to the holy character of Jesus Christ. In other words, the Holy Spirit gives you the will, the heart, the desire to pursue righteousness and holiness with all the strength that he supplies. And so this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul says, whatever I am, it is all by the grace of God. And he says, his grace toward me was not in vain. Then he says, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me or with me. Paul worked harder than any of them. He worked. It was all of God's grace, and yet he worked. Uh, many, many years ago, someone gave me a T-shirt uh, that said, let go and let Christ. And I had some very mixed feelings about this T-shirt. Uh, on the one hand, it was a great shirt because it was long sleeve and it was, it was really good for running. But on the other hand, I really was uh, not enthusiastic about the very kind of confusing message that it gave. What does it mean to let go? Well, whatever that means, it certainly does not mean that the process of sanctification in the Christian life does not involve our effort, our striving, our endeavoring. Uh, Paul did not let go. He took hold. He took hold of Jesus Christ by faith. And by faith in Christ, as the Spirit was at work in him, he worked. And so what I decided to do is to uh, wear the T-shirt when I went running, uh, but I would just turn it inside out so I could benefit from the shirt. But I wasn't broadcasting to everyone a very uh, potentially confusing message about the Christian life. And so growing in holiness is both a command and a gift. It's a command and a gift, sanctification. It's a gift because it is the Holy Spirit whom God gives you, who works in you. And yet it's a command because you are to engage your whole being in pursuing righteousness and holiness. And so, for example, the author of Hebrews, he says this in 1214. He says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for holiness. Second Corinthians 7, 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, 
let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And so we are commanded to pursue holiness. But these two truths come together so beautifully in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, that sanctification is both a command of God and it is a gift of God. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There's the command. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There is the gift. There is the promise that it is the spirit of God who works in you that you might work out your salvation. One of the enduring gifts that the theologians of the Reformation have given us was that they brought tremendous clarity to the relationship between justification and sanctification. And so in their teaching, the reformers showed us how justification, uh, from their teaching, you know, from the scriptures, they showed us how justification is once is God's once for all gracious act by which he forgives all our sins and he declares us righteous. He gives us everlasting life on the basis of the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. That is justification. And then they showed us from the scripture how sanctification is God's gradual work in making us more righteous in our thoughts, words and conduct. And so they showed us that justification and sanctification, they always go together and yet they are distinct. They are not the same thing. Sanctification follows justification. And that was absolutely crucial because before the Reformation, according to the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, you could have no real assurance as a Christian that you were actually right before God, that you were in a right standing with God, that your sins were forgiven, that he has accepted you. You could have no real assurance of that because justification could only come at the end of the process of God sanctifying you. What that meant was you had to achieve a certain level of personal holiness and righteousness before you could hope that you were justified, made right before God. And so you can imagine, especially if you had a tender conscience like Martin Luther did, you could imagine how much you would struggle with any kind of sense of assurance that things were right between you and God, because you would always be wondering, have I been good enough for God? Have I been sanctified enough in order to be right with God? Have I lived righteously enough for his acceptance? Am I really saved? Are my sins really forgiven? I don't know. But the reformers declared the glorious truth that at the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, at the moment you come to Christ and and, and come to him by faith, believing that he is Lord and trusting yourself to him for your salvation. At that very moment, you are justified. You are right with God. Your sins are forgiven. You are a son of God, a daughter of God. You are given eternal life. Your place in heaven is secure forever. At that very moment, even though at that moment there may be much sin still in you. And then, and then, as one who has been forgiven, justified, adopted, then God begins his work of sanctifying you. Then you begin to grow in holiness. Then you begin to be more conformed to the image of Christ. And this makes a world of difference in the Christian life because no longer then are we seeking to please God 
in order to, or no longer are we seeking to do what God commands us to do in order to gain his acceptance, in order to be good enough, to be righteous enough for him to love us, for him to uh, call us his own. But as those who have already been redeemed, as those who are justified and forgiven and loved by God in Jesus Christ, we serve him out of a heart filled with gratitude for this grace. It makes a world of difference in the Christian life. It is a difference between knowing God as Father, knowing that you are loved by him, knowing Christ as your Savior, and never really being sure whether you're right with God. And the means by which the Spirit of God does this work of sanctification in you is through what are called the means of grace, the Word of God, the sacraments, the prayer, and prayer. God uses his Word to sanctify us. Jesus prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. When we come to the Lord's Supper, your your faith uh, is nourished uh, by the body, by the blood of Christ. And in prayer, one of the ways that God uses prayer as a means of grace is that he uses it to conform our will, that we would submit to the will of God in all things. And for the most part, these means of grace take place in the context of the fellowship of God's people. And this is why it is so vital for you as a Christian that you do not separate yourself from the worship of God, from the preaching of God's word, from the sacraments, from the communion of saints in the body of Christ. This is why it's so important to be actively involved in the body of Christ, in the church. It's not because God is sitting in heaven looking down on you, keeping this uh, celestial scorecard of who of your church attendance, of how faithful you've been to go to church. But because these are the means, the gracious means that God has given you to grow in holiness and righteousness. And I should add, and it needs to be said, that to grow in holiness is to grow in happiness. Uh, The way to receive the richest blessings of God, the way to obtain the greatest blessedness that that you can have with God is the way of sanctification of growing in righteousness, growing in holiness. And that way runs through the body of Christ and her ministry and her worship and her fellowship. But sanctification can be a painful process. It's not always pleasant because sanctification means dying. It means you die to your old self. You die to your old patterns of thinking. You die to the old ways of acting and and speaking, and at the same time, you're putting on new habits, new patterns of thought, new patterns of speaking and acting, and that is a radical change, and it is not always easy. Often it is painful, and it's especially painful when God uses in his providence difficulties and even suffering to discipline us, to make us more and more Christ-like. In the book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Uh, C.S. Lewis gives us a very vivid picture of the awful or or the uh, painful process of sanctification in that uh, if you if you've read the voyage of the Don Treader, you remember that there's a boy in that book uh, named Eustace, and he's a very arrogant, a very unlikable character, very obnoxious, and he's turned into a dragon. Um, And While he's a dragon, there's a change within him that takes place, and so he becomes a very humble and considerate person. But while he's still a dragon, he meets Aslan, and of course, Aslan represents Christ. And Aslan's purpose is to transform Eustace from a dragon to being a boy again. 
And so when Aslan comes to Eustace as a dragon, he tells him to undress. That means he's to take off his scaly dragon skin. And Eustace begins to do this. He claws at his skin and he gets one layer off. And then he gets another layer off. And then he gets another layer off. But he looks at his skin and he sees that it's still hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly. And it's at that point that Aslan says to him, you will have to let me undress you. In other words, Aslan, of course, is Christ. I am the one who is going to change you. And then as Eustace describes it, he says, I lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. But after, the, after that skin, that dragon skin was finally off, as painful as it was, he realized that the transformation was complete. He was a boy again. He was truly human. And Aslan had changed him. He had transformed him. He was not only no longer a monster on the outside, but he was no longer a monster within. He was one who was sanctified, being sanctified. And it was painful. And it is painful for you and I as well. When the Lord is working through our circumstances, through suffering, in order to grow us to be more like Christ. But the result is something glorious. It is something glorious. And one day, you will be able to look back and consider and think of all the ways that your heavenly father disciplined you and purified you and sanctified you. All the difficult ways that he did that. And you will see at that time it was all worth it. It was all worth it. It was all for good. God knew what he was doing. He had a loving purpose for you in all the things that he brought you through in this life. Because you will see that what he was doing was to make you what you will be at that day, one who is perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, without sin, reflecting the glory of Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the third dimension of sanctification, and that is you will be sanctified. That is to say, you will be fully sanctified. You will be complete and whole in righteousness without sin. When you die, your soul as a Christian as one who is united to Christ by faith, when you die, your soul is made perfect in holiness. And then on the day of resurrection, when the Lord Jesus comes again and calls your body out of the grave, your body will be raised without sin, a body that is incorruptible. You will be perfectly holy and righteous, even as Jesus is. Of course, we are not there yet. We are not to the place where we are without sin. We are waiting for that time. John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Remember the Apostle Paul? He was someone that if there was anyone in the world that we could point to and say, here is someone who has truly arrived. He is righteous. He is holy. The Apostle Paul spoke of himself, saying, in my members, I see another law waging a war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He struggled with sin. And that should be an encouragement to us. That if even this man, the Apostle Paul, daily struggled with sin, so we too um, were not alone in that struggle. But in the life to come, God will bring that good work to, to completion. You will be truly sinless. And you will not be sinless in the way that Adam and Eve were sinless. In, in a sense you will be, but it will be better. Because Adam and Eve were sinless, and yet they... They were left to the possibility of sinning, which they did, of course. 
but in that day you will be confirmed in righteousness forever. Another way to put this is that you will never, ever, ever, ever sin your way out of heaven because it will be impossible for you to sin. And this is God's purpose for you in Christ, not to take you back to the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve were tested and tempted, but to confirm you in righteousness, to give you that blessedness and eternal life, that communion with God forever and ever. And what will you look like then? You will look like Jesus. You will look like Jesus. Obviously not physically. Uh, you won't even have, uh, you'll, you'll still have your same personality, your same looks and so on, but in character, in righteousness and holiness, you will be without sin. Imagine what it would be like. It's hard for us to think about this because sin is so much a part of the experience that we have in this world. But imagine what it would be like never to entertain an evil or sinful thought. Imagine never thinking a thought that's even in the slightest way tainted with self-interest or, or, or evil in any way. Imagine never being impatient or irritable or short-tempered. Imagine being free from all self-centeredness. Imagine never experiencing greed or lust or jealousy or hatred. Imagine that your heart is only filled with the love of God and of Jesus Christ and a love for others. Imagine that the only thing that fills your heart is a desire to see the glory of God. And that's what it would be like to be perfectly holy. And again, to be perfectly holy will be to be perfectly blessed. And that is what it would be like to be like Christ. We are waiting for that day. We are waiting for that day. In the meantime, until that day when we are made like Jesus, in the meantime, fix your eyes upon Christ. Look to Jesus Christ. Behold the goodness, the love, the holiness of the Son of God who came in the flesh in the person of Christ. Behold his grace to you, that he so loved you that he laid down his life for you, that he offered himself a sacrifice for your sin and guilt. Behold, as you look to Christ, the Father, the Father, as he reveals himself in the face of his son, Jesus. Look upon Jesus. And as you do, even now, the spirit of Christ is transforming you to be more and more like him. Second Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let's pray.